How many of you is that song among the, your favorites? Yeah, it's a beautiful song. You know, just about three years ago, one of the largest denominations in, in the U.S. was publishing a new hymnal to get more current. And so they, they wanted to put this song in the hymnal, only they had one problem with it. It contains controversial words that they felt uh, would have a negative impact upon the worshiper's education. And the phrase in question was, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The meaning of the cross, penal substitutionary atonement, and that's what we're speaking about today because that's what they're speaking about on Sandy Island. Three messages on Sandy Two yesterday, the first Pastor Brandon brought was on penal substitutionary atonement as seen in the Old Testament and how it is throughout the Old Testament. The second message I spoke, and I will bring it to you this morning, is Jesus' view of penal substitutionary atonement. And this morning, Pastor Brandon is bringing the epistles, the letters of Paul and the other letters in the New Testament and how they established the penal substitutionary atonement. Now, we might feel for an evangelical church, is that not overkill? I mean, isn't that something we believe? Almost every song we sang today expressed that doctrine. And simply what penal substitutionary atonement means is there is a penalty for our sin that a just and holy God needs to have paid. But instead of putting that payment upon us and demanding that we pay for the sin, which would eternally separate us from God, God loves us so much that he became a substitute for us. He took our place to take that penalty upon himself. And the word atonement means that the sin is covered, our sin is taken care of so that we could have a relationship with God, we could be at one with God again. That's simply what it means. It's what we believe here, what we preach, what so many evangelical churches around us are preaching. But the cross, that meaning of the cross has been under attack for a while. Uh, first illustration I gave was from Brandon's message yesterday. He also gave this one and said, Albert Moeller, who is currently the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, recalled on his very first day of class in that seminary, which he now leads, that his professor of New Testament studies explained to the class that there will be no bloody cross religion put it, 
commit cosmic child abuse. And so they will have nothing to do with it, and they give the cross a whole new meaning. And this series is being preached first and foremost because the cross and that meaning of the cross is central to the Christian life. It is central to gospel living. The whole Christian life flows out of it. Therefore, we want to make sure the cross is really deep into our hearts. But the second is that there is movement within evangelical churches, progressive churches, uh, accommodating churches, where they may use the word cross, but it has a different meaning. And so we just need to be tuned in to understand that the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, and the epistles that explain what Christ was trying to teach us and how to live out the Christian life, all support, defend, and confirm the penal substitutionary atonement. Let's pray. Our Lord, you tell us to love you with all our hearts, our soul, our minds, and our strengths. We pray, Lord, that a lot of this sermon is addressing the mind, our understanding, our theology. You want us to love you with all your heart all our minds. But it's all about our hearts as well. If this doctrine simply remains something in our minds that we could defend and debate, we've fallen far short. Lord, bring this truth into our hearts so that, Lord, it will be our strength in our entire lives, our souls, would live out of this truth. Only your spirit can do that. Open my heart to the sword of your spirit. Open each of our hearts to the work you want to do in them this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. In a well-known Scottish theology series called the Gifford Lectures, one of the renowned speakers, Sir Alice Hardy, asked the question, would Jesus, if Jesus were alive today, would he be a Christian? And Sir Hardy answered the question in this way. I very much doubt it. I feel certain that we, he would not have preached to us of a God who would be appeased by a cruel sacrifice of a tortured body. I cannot accept either the hypothesis that the appalling death of Jesus was a sacrifice in the eyes of God for the sins of the world, or that God, in the shape of his Son, tortured himself for our redemption. I find such religious ideas to be among the least attractive in the whole of anthropology. To me, they belong to quite a different philosophy, a different psychology from that of religion that Jesus taught. Now, we're not here this morning to ask Sir Alistair Hardy if Jesus would be a Christian today. We want to ask Jesus if he would be a Christian today. Would he believe in a bloody cross? Would he believe that the cross satisfied the wrath of God through which he was tortured and crucified and separated from the Father? And 
what I hope we will come away with is we will hear Jesus saying a resounding, yes, that is the meaning of my cross, and that is what I preached and what I would preach today. And we're going to do it by looking at three things. One, that Jesus' affirmation of the Old Testament sacrifices as he, he himself fulfilling them. Secondly, to look directly at the words of Jesus Christ and his experience at the cross. And then thirdly, to look at the very foundation building blocks of Christianity and show that they are grounded. Jesus himself grounds the way we are justified, what it means to believe, and how we live the Christian life all flow from the cross of Christ. So... The, uh, the the group up at Sandy Island have a little bit on this because Brandon gave about a 50-minute message in the Old Testament showing most particularly that in the Passover, it was all about the lamb taking the place, bearing the penalty of God for the sins of Israel. And so the blood of the lamb was taken and placed on the lintel and the doorposts, so that when the judgment of God on the sin to take the firstborn, the angel of death passed over because the blood of the lamb, which had been the sacrifice for their sin, covered them. The second passage he spent a lot of time on was Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, and how they looked forward, Israel looked forward to a servant delivering them, and a servant ultimately delivering all of us. And that comes through Isaiah 53, where the iniquity of us all is placed on this servant as he takes our place. And so Pastor Ben had established very well, penal substitutionary atonement was taught very clearly in the Old Testament. So we have to ask the question, did Jesus see it the same way? Did he simply see it as those are Old Testament things that you did in Old Testament times, or did he actually see them as those sacrifices that were pointing to himself? Jesus said this in John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but it is the Scriptures that bear witness to me. Now, he's talking to religious leaders who are in conflict with him. And Jesus says, you know, the way you approach the Bible, the way you approach the Old Testament, is, is you're looking through the scrolls, and you're looking for all the commands that you're supposed to do. And you figure if you live up to these commands, you're going to get eternal life. That's, so that's how you search the Scriptures. But I teach you this. That isn't the way you get eternal life. Eternal life comes through me in the entire Old Testament is pointing to me. Very specifically, does he apply the Passover lamb to himself? The very beginning, just even before Jesus is, begins his ministry, he's baptized. Baptized by the one who is supposed to point out the Messiah. And that's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist once he recognizes Jesus is this Messiah, this is the one I am to be lifting up and proclaiming, he says this as he sees him. Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what's this whole concept of lamb? The lamb, of course, is the Passover lamb. So the first thing John the Baptist says about Jesus is, this is the Passover lamb who's going to die as our substitute so that the judgment of God will pass over us. And to confirm that understanding, look at the last phrase. He's not just a lamb of God. He's the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So that confirms Pastor Brandon's understanding of Passover is about penal substitutionary atonement. Now, those are John the Baptist's words, but how about Jesus? Well, toward the end of Jesus' life, he goes into the upper room with his disciples, and he eats a meal with them that we call the Last Supper. They called it Passover. And so, during a Passover meal, there are certain elements that you go through, you walk through, and so the father sits at the head of the table and he explains what each item means, what it pictures. So Jesus now has his disciples, and as a father to them, he takes this bread, the unleavened bread, and he gives it a new meaning. Now again, this is the Passover bread he's applying to himself, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Later, he takes the cup, uh, which spoke of, this was the third cup out of four cups at the Passover meal. It's called the cup of redemption. And he takes this and he says, this is my blood, blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of your sin. Drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes the Passover meal and applies the Passover truth to himself. Uh, John Stott said this, Thus Jesus modeled his sayings upon the ritual of interpreting the Passover. This further clarifies Jesus' understanding of the purpose of his death. In other words, Jesus spoke of himself as a sacrifice. Indeed, he was most probably speaking of himself as the Passover lamb, so that the meaning of his last parable was, I go to death as the true Passover sacrifice. Well, what about Isaiah 53? Is that something Jesus applies to himself? Well, after Jesus is baptized, declared he's the Passover lamb, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested to fast in preparation for his ministry. The Gospel of Luke says when he comes out of that temptation, he goes into Galilee he does some teaching, and then he enters into the synagogue at Nazareth. And the first words we ever have recorded of his public ministry are these. He opens the book of Isaiah, and he reads a passage about the suffering servant, and it goes like thus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the suffering servant, the one that is going to bring us life. And Jesus, it says, he closed the book. Everybody was looking at him. And he said, these words are fulfilled in your presence. 
He's saying, I am the suffering servant. This shows us what Jesus came to bring us. He came to bring us the kingdom of God where the the curse and all that the curse of sin brings us will be reversed. The curse that separates us from God, that separates us from one another, that separates us from ourselves, that separates us from uh, creation and the environment. God is going to reverse all of that pain one day. And Isaiah says it's through the suffering servant who is going to take our iniquity upon himself. Now, is that what Jesus really means here? And I say yes, because that's the message his disciples got. In the book of Acts, in chapter 8, we have an Ethiopian who happens to be a eunuch. Apparently he was in Jerusalem and he's going back to, to Ethiopia. And... It says, well, in that case, God literally takes Philip and drops him right into the presence of the Ethiopian eunuch. So it says, Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from earth. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So this is a quote from Isaiah 53. Our iniquity will be placed on him. And Philip says, this is all about Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He, he probably went back to Passover and throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus, remember when he's on the road to Emmaus, he's traveling with these, these men and these two disciples who are, who are forlorn. For, they're, they're shattered, they're depressed because of the cross. They feel defeated and Jesus comes alongside them and he starts to open the scripture to them. And this is what he says. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus says to them, he says, don't you realize the cross was not a defeat, it was a victory, that the suffering of the Messiah, it was necessary for the suffering of the Messiah. And then he goes through the whole Old Testament, which is divided into three parts in the Hebrew mindset, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In the law, we see the sacrificial system, sacrifices for a sin applied to Jesus. We see the Passover applied to Jesus. We see the Day of Atonement applied to Jesus. We see in the prophets, Isaiah 53 applied to Jesus. Other aspects of the suffering servant applied to Jesus. We read the Psalms 
and the prophecies of the Messiah applied to Jesus. And we look at Psalm 22, which begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it depicts in detail the suffering of one on a cross written 400 years before the cross was used as a form of punishment. The whole Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ and it speaks of penal substitutionary atonement of our Savior. How about Jesus' direct teaching? Well, it can be summed up in John 3.16. And some think John wrote this as a summary of Jesus' teaching, the, the end of his teaching to Nicodemus. Others think Jesus himself spoke it. Either way, this summarizes Jesus' ministry, understanding of it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Many of us know this verse. God so loved the world he sent his son so we can have eternal life. But he gets very specific here. He says he sent him into the world because he doesn't want to condemn the world. He wasn't sent into the world and say, you're bad sinners, you're condemned, and you're going to be separated from God forever because you stand under the wrath of God. Goodbye. That's not what he came to do. He came to say that to us and then say, and I come and take your place because God so loved the world. I will die for you so that if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Jesus over and over talks about the importance of his death on the cross. He gets very specific in Luke chapter 19 when he says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue us. There's something wrong. We are lost. We are in trouble. And so... Jesus Christ came to get us out of trouble. It isn't as though, you know, hey, we're doing okay. We're innocent people and let's, uh, Jesus is going to come and he's going to kind of weight the scale so we're, we become better people because we're inspired by his death on the cross. That's not, he came to seek us because we were lost. Uh, he gets more, more descriptive in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35 where he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this verse is jam-packed. It's given in the context of his disciples arguing with one another about who's the greatest and who should have the seat of privilege. And he says, don't you realize I came to serve? My ultimate service is to be a ransom for many. He came to be a ransom now, what, what, if you have to pay a ransom, what are you doing? You are paying something out to free someone. We used to have redemption centers, the word ransom, redemption, where you had green stamps. Boy, we're really going back. Uh, and they called a redemption center. You bring those and you get items because you paid for them with your, your green stamps. Uh, Jesus is saying, I come to pay. And what he's paying is, he's paying the penalty for our sin so that we would not have to be under the wrath of God. But it, it also points to his person. 
Who is it that is able to pay for the sins of the world? Well, he says, I, the Son of Man, come. Now, this is reference to Daniel, the fact that he's the Messiah. But it also speaks of his humanity. To be the son of somebody, you are the same nature. You know, if you're the son of a cow, you're going to be a cow. If you're the son of a man, you're going to be a person. You're going to be human. So it speaks of Jesus is 100% human. He was born like we are born. He grew up like we grew up. He's a man. It also... We can also infer from this passage that he is God. We do that in the word came. He says, I, the Son of Man, came into the world. He's saying, wasn't like everybody else who was born into the world. That was their beginning. Before I was born, I decided to go into the world. I am pre-existent, and I made the choice knowing that people needed to be ransomed, so I made the choice. I was born before, I, I, I existed before I was born. Now, this passage doesn't bring out that that means he's divine, but John chapter 8 does. And another time when he speaks of his pre-existence, he's with the religious leaders, and he makes the claim Before Abraham, I am. And then the religious leaders all pick up stones to stone him, to put him to death, simply because they said, I am. Now, notice, it speaks of his preexistence. He existed before Abraham, 2,000 years earlier. But he doesn't say, before Abraham, I was. That's, That's better grammar. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And the reason he uses I am instead of I was is because that's the divine name of God. When Moses asks God, when God's in the burning bush in the book of Exodus, he says, well, give me your name so when you send me to Egypt, I can tell them the name of the God who I'm representing. And he said, tell them I am has set you. I am that I am. And so the reaction of the people, you can understand it. This man is claiming to be God. So in this verse, we put together the incarnation, God 100% human, 100% God, the divine mystery, because that's who it will take in order to ransom us. See, in the Old Testament, they might have put out lambs and bulls and goats, but Hebrews is very clear. A lamb, a bull, a goat cannot stand in our place. Has to be a human. Has to be someone equal to us. Secondly, one human cannot pay the price for for multiple people. Could only stand it for one person. Even the kids get this. I do this with them sometimes is I'll have maybe five of them around me, and I'll give them each four quarters. Then I'll pull out a dollar, and I'll say, who can make change? And they all say, I'll make change. I said, okay, please. And they all give me their quarters, and then I give them the dollar. 
And they all start to scream, hey, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. I said, why not? You, you, you had four quarters. That's equal to a dollar. I gave you a dollar. He says, but no, five of us gave you. You got five dollars back, and we only got one dollar. That's not fair. And they're right. So for someone to die had to be innocent, perfect. Otherwise, if they had sin, they'd have to die for themselves. But if the innocent person, he might be able to die for me. But that leaves you out. And God loves all of us. And so he needed to send someone who's human, but also infinite in his being. And that's who Jesus is, man and God, so he could die for every one of us. And he did. He gave his life a ransom for us. But Jesus didn't only teach substitutionary atonement. He experienced it. As we move toward the cross and Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a very curious scene. Jesus, who's so courageous, so steady, so immovable, is a basket case in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's anxious. He's fearful. He, he's, he's crying out to God, can, can, you, can you save me from this cup? He's sweating drops like blood. And we say, what's going on here? He's, Jesus is afraid to die? And, and look at people in history, the martyrs who would follow Jesus. So many of them were tortured and died praising God. They weren't afraid. They weren't fearful. Are they more courageous than Jesus? I mean, was Jesus fearful when he actually went to the cross? Was he quivering on the cross and saying, I wish you would let me down. Angels come down and save me. No, he's there on the cross dying. And what's he thinking of? He's thinking of us. He's thinking of those people who are torturing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's thinking of his mother. John, take care of my mother. He's thinking of this, this thief on the cross that was mocking him only minutes earlier. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus wasn't afraid of death. He was afraid of the cup. The cup is symbolic of the wrath of God. He'd never been separated from the Father. He didn't want to bear our sin. I mean, he, he did. He wanted to do it. He came into the world to ransom us, but as it faced him, to bear the cup of wrath, to actually experience hell in our place, it made him shiver. Um, John Stott says this, in that, the, in that case, the cup from which Jesus shrank was something different from physical torture and death. It symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected even by his own people, but rather the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, of enduring the divine judgment which these sins deserved. That is the correct understanding. It's strongly confirmed by the Old Testament usage for in both wisdom literature and the prophets, the Lord's cup was a regular symbol of his wrath. Steve Demers came up to me afterwards and said, do you notice in, in, in Revelation, the cup turns into 
bowls of God's judgment. That's what Jesus was afraid of. He was going to pay the penalty for our sins. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to die. It's, I'm going to be under the wrath of God. And surely that's the case because Jesus cries out. After he looks after everybody, he cries agonizingly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. He knew that the cross was the punishment for sin. Those are the first words of Psalm 22. So anybody familiar with would be thinking in terms of that psalm, and that's the psalm that depicts the cross. So Jesus knew that his dying on the cross was going to sever him from the Father. Why? Why would God do that? If this is simply an act of Jesus is going to show us how much he loves us, you would think the Father would be all around him, comforting him, upholding him. Instead, the Father has left him and forsaken him. Because God needs to judge sin, and Jesus is the one being judged. And so, right there, just before he, he puts his head on the cross and dies, he says, To tell us die, it's finished. Now, these words have a lot of meaning. When Jesus, when God created the world in six days, Before he rested, it says he created it, he saw it was good, and he said, it is finished. Jesus came to bring us the kingdom of God, and it would take his death on the cross in our place to bring us that kingdom. And so he says, just like God, it is finished, and then he rested his head on the cross and died. It means... Jesus' work on the cross is done. His suffering for our sin is completed. But the word it is finished is also used in ancient Greek for paying bills. So if you had a bill, especially a tax bill, it would be once you paid it, it would be stamped to telestai, paid in full. People would understand the connection. Jesus says, something's paid in full by my death. What? The ransom, the justice and holiness of God, which brings wrath. It's finished, and it's paid in full for each one of us. Now, Jesus often spoke of the cross. One time, one of those times was in Matthew chapter 16. And he had asked the disciples, you've been around there. Tell me, what do people say about me? Who do they say I am? And the disciples were like, well, some of them say that you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Others think you're Elijah, the prophet. Some think you're just you're one of the prophets. And he says, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you got it. And then Jesus continues, and he goes on. And he says, that he's going to have to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, and he's going to die, and then three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And Peter responds, 
Lord, may it never be. That's not going to happen. Forget about this cross stuff and this torture stuff. And Jesus' words are, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. What's it saying? Jesus came to die. I don't care what your belief about Jesus is. If you think he's the the greatest teacher who ever lived, the most holy person who ever lived, the, the most wonderful prophet, even the greatest person who ever lived, if you leave out the cross of Jesus Christ and his penal substitutionary atonement, what that cross means, Jesus' response to you is, you have fallen into the trap of Satan. You see, Satan wanted to keep Christ from the cross. That's what the temptations are all about. All three of them are about that. He couldn't do it. So then he wanted to sift Peter. He wanted to sift the disciples. So, okay, if Jesus dies, okay, he accomplished this, but if I keep the message out, if there's nobody to put the message out, what good's that going to do? It's a voice crying in the woods when nobody hears it. And so he was sifting the disciples so they would be fearful and not go proclaim, but he wasn't able to do that. So what's the next best thing? Have people talk about the cross, but get the wrong meaning and understanding of it. Take away the penal substitutionary atonement, and you're left with very little in the cross. Yeah, it might be inspirational. might be a victory over sin, but it's not life-transforming to anyone else. Again, part of our concern is it's possible this type of attitude is creeping into the church because our culture today says abuse, and they're right, abuse is horrible. And so when the culture starts to say, oh, look at how could a father abuse his son like that, like the God, you could say God did on the cross. Churches that want to accommodate our culture, to be more accepted by our culture, it's very tempting to give way on the penal substitution atonement. Putting our eyes on man rather than God. As we continue to preach this, and other evangelical churches preach this, we will be more and more alienated. But we will not leave God. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross, what he did for us, let us never forget that. Let us never give in on that. And so thirdly, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament teaching about himself. Jesus taught and experienced the penal substitutionary atonement, and he based the entire Christian life on it. What does it mean to be justified? How do you get justified? Justification means that God looks at us, and he declares us innocent, not guilty. He declares us righteous. Even though we have to sin, he declares us good and right in right relationship with himself. So that's really the beginning of the whole Christian life is being justified. And Jesus gives a parable to teach us justification. <clears throat> and it's in Luke chapter 18. And it's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. They both go up to pray. And who's the one that's going to be justified? Now, the Pharisee lived a very holy life, the tax collector 
seem very sinful. So everybody would say, who's in? Pharisees in, tax collectors out. Jesus turns the table on him because at the end he says, the Pharisees out, the tax collectors in. Why? Well, the Pharisee was depending upon his own personal righteousness, trying to earn his own way to God. And Jesus says, you can't do it. The tax collector, let's see what he says. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. So what did he believe in order to be justified? I'm a sinner. And I'm in trouble because I need God's mercy. See, we need to accept Christ as Savior. To do that, we have to realize we're sinners and we're in trouble. And we can't save ourselves. The Pharisee thought, I'm a sinner, maybe I'm in trouble, but I can save myself. But the word mercy is more than mercy. It's actually the word propitious. And it makes all the difference in the world if you understand uh, you understand this. A, uh, another professor at a Southern Baptist school seminary, a Frank Stagg, said this, and he represents a lot of people. He said, God is free to forgive. The father does not need to punish the son in order to earn the right to forgive. He can just do it. And if we read this as the tax collector saying, I'm a sinner, but Lord, you're free to forgive me. You're free to give me mercy so I can have a relationship with you and be justified. Then Frank Stagg is on target. But he doesn't say mercy. He says, be propitious to me. Propitious is the word meaning satisfied. God, you have to be satisfied about my sin. Why? Because my sin deserves wrath. Somehow your justice, your holiness, your faithfulness, your righteousness has to be satisfied. And it isn't going to be satisfied if I say I'm a sinner and you say, okay, no big deal. It's only to be satisfied if there is a payment for our sins. And in reality, our hearts know that. A B.B. Warfield said this about our hearts. He said, within them, there's a deep moral self-condemnation, which is present as a primary factor in all truly religious experience. It cries out for expiation. What he's saying is, deep down in our hearts, we know if somebody just says you're forgiven, there's still this sense of a guilt that, that I still need to pay for it in some way. It's there. So for we know if God just says, oh, you're forgiven, we know deep down that that's not just, it's not right. There has to be some kind of payment, some way we have to make up for it. And by the way, some Christians still feel that way even after the cross. That's not faith because Christ paid for all the sins. He took the penalty for all of them to free us from this kind of guilt. So the way to justification is to what? God, you have to somehow satisfy your justice and your wrath regarding my sin. This is before the cross. 
The tax collector anticipates the cross. Jesus fulfilled his prayer. Jesus was the satisfaction, the propitiation, Romans chapter 3, for our sins. So God could pass over them. Secondly, what does it mean to believe? God so loved the world. Whoever believes in him, that's the way we get justified. What does it mean to believe? Jesus' words, John 3, 14 and 15. Notice that's just before John 3, 16. When you quote John 3, 16, remember 14 and 15. Jesus has spoken to Nicodemus, and at the end of his conversation, he's telling Nicodemus how you really get born again. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we have the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. It was probably bigger than this. But Jesus is using this story, Old Testament story. What had happened was the people were sinning against God, poisonous serpents, snakes would bite them, and they would die. And so they cry out, God, help us, Moses, somehow help us, save us. Instead of saying, so Moses was given God, by God this brazen serpent. He says, create a brazen serpent, put it on a pole. Whoever is bitten and is dying will look to this, right? It's lifted up. So wherever they look to it for what? Knowing this is going to save me. Jesus uses that as parallel to what it means to believe in him. So as the Israelites were sinning, so we sin. The Israelites suffer a penalty of death by the serpent. We suffer the penalty of death when we sin. God makes a provision. A bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. He makes a provision for us. Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. So what, how did the Israelite get saved? He got saved by looking, believing what? Believing that this will save me. We look and say, that saves me, the cross of Jesus Christ. What's on this pole? The instrument of death. What killed us? Sin brought death. This represents, in a sense, the sin that kills us. What is put on the cross of Jesus Christ so that when we believe in him we are saved? It is our sin that is placed on Jesus Christ. Also, the whole Christian life is lived grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. We have that story in Luke chapter 7. A Pharisee invites Jesus to a dinner. At the same time, there's a war, immoral woman, an outcast who is standing on the wall. People could do that in those days when a, a teacher was present. But you don't come off the wall. She did. Jesus is reclining at dinner, his feet out here. She comes, starts to minister to his feet. She washes them with the, her tears. She t- takes out her beautiful hair, wipes with her hair. She takes out her amulet of very valuable perfume. She breaks it pours it on Jesus' feet. That is the picture of the Christian life. That is the picture of worship, of servant, of a heart of love, of giving, of change in identity. It's the Christian life. What's at the heart of her? The Pharisee saying, God, you shouldn't accept her. 
And Jesus tries to get the Pharisee to understand what's really in her heart. And so he gives a parable. He says, there's two men owe their master money. One of them owes $10,000. The other owns $1 million. Now, remember, in those days, if you owed a debt, they could put you in prison and you don't get out until the debt's paid. So you might be able to raise 10000 to get out of prison. A million, I couldn't. And so he asked the question, the master forgives both. Who's going to love him more? And the hardened, the, the Pharisee who's hardened to Jesus says, well, I suppose the one who is forgiven much. And Jesus now applies that. He says, you've done nothing for me. She's done everything for me. Essentially, because she understands my forgiveness, my offer of forgiveness. And she feels that in her. And therefore, she's living out of that. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now notice, the Christian life is lived out of a love relationship with God based on our understanding of the depth of God's love in our forgiveness. There are many today who say, the cross of Jesus Christ displays the love of God, how much God loves us. It is not a substitutionary atonement for our sins. It is simply an expression of how much God loves us. And when you feel that love, you're going to love him back. Two problems with that view. One, this passage, though the woman does live out of love, realizing how much love, it does not say, he who is loved much loves much. It says, he who is forgiven much loves much. Till we realize how bad our sin is, how we are in prison with no way to pay it, till we realize how horrible our sin is, till we, like Isaiah, see the holiness of God and cry out, I'm in trouble, God. I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined. Until we feel that, we won't understand the cross. And only when we look at the cross and see that do we realize the heights, depths, widths, and breadths of the love of God that Paul prays that we understand and have. Second thing wrong is that view is insane. The view that God's going to show us, Jesus showing his love, so we go, wow, that's how much God loves us. For instance, I love you. And so I say, I'm going to prove my love to you. I'm going to run in front of that trailer truck and let it kill me. Run out there, boom. What are you going to think of me? Huh? <laughs> Thanks a lot, huh? <laughs> you say, huh? It's crazy. That was insane. But if you were walking across the street and you fell and there's a trailer truck barreling down on you and I ran out there and I pushed you out of the way, fell in front of that truck, and it took my life, you're going to make a foundation in my name you're going to have a scholarship at my high school. You're going to visit my grave every day. You're going to tell the story about how I saved you the rest of your life. 
That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He didn't just say, let me show you how much. He took the penalty that we deserved. And we should make foundations in his name. We should make churches in his name. We should have worship services in his name. We should tell other people about him. We should love him because we know his love. You know, this argument has raged on for years. It will continue on. And I don't think it's ever going to be the debate about the atonement of Christ, meaning of the cross, I don't think it's ever going to be resolved here on earth. Fortunately, it's resolved in heaven already. For we have the picture of the entire angelic realm worshiping God, and it's praising God the Father, God, and God the Son. But it doesn't say, praise God, praise God the Son. It says, praise God and praise the Lamb. That's what Jesus is known as, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, who is our substitute to take away the sins of the world. In heaven they know the meaning of the cross, and they cry out, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's join heaven in praising God the Father and the Lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you that you are not unclear about this, but you were clear in the Old Testament, clear in Jesus' teaching, his experience, clear in the epistles, and most of all, clear in heaven itself. Amen.